please turn back in your Bibles to Romans uh, chapter 3 and 4, that, uh, the reading from the New Testament this morning. Uh, we're continuing in our series in the five uh, solas of the Reformation uh, that people like Luther and Calvin and Cramner and so on fought to preserve the truth of the gospel. We did grace alone last week, and this week it is faith uh, alone, uh, sola fide. There's an outline of the talk that you can, uh, you can uh, follow along with. In, the, in your bulletin. Hopefully you didn't get one of the blank ones. Okay, as we come to God's word, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray, indeed pray that you would give us ears to hear you clearly, give us minds to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is the world's Messiah, the suffering Son of Man. And we pray that you would help me to teach uh, your word faithfully. And we pray that you would help each and every one of us not to trust in our, in our own works for salvation, but to believe in the Lord Jesus and trust entirely in him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the question that lies behind uh, this second solar uh, faith alone is the question, how can a person be made right with God? How is it that a person can be accepted by God and enter into heaven? Or uh, to use the, the language of the Bible, how can someone be justified, declared innocent before God? Well, the world tells us, of course, everywhere around us that if you want to be accepted, if you want to be praised, then uh, it happens by your own performance. And so it's like that in the, in the workplace, isn't it? We, uh, if you want the boss's approval, then better get the work done. If you want the praise and the promotion, then better work hard. School or university, of course, acceptance into that, uh, that prestigious university or, or leaving the university as a graduate, they're both dependent, isn't it, on your on your academic performance. How do, you, how do you perform? Even in some, in some marriages, very sadly on occasion, it can be like this, isn't it? Where a partner's love is conditional on the performance of the spouse. Well, we see this uh, works-based uh, approach to life uh, played out in the realm of religion, of course, as well. Uh, one of the foundational principles of, of Buddhism and Islam is the idea of karma. If you, if you do good things, then good things will come back to you. If you do evil, you will suffer evil uh, yourself. Or, or in Islam, uh, if you want to be accepted by God, receive his approval, then you must follow the rules. Pray five times a day, fast, give zakat, go on pilgrimage, uh, and so on. Even in the, the cults of Christianity, uh, Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, uh, and, and it's often like this in the same way. Follow the rules, the cult's rules. Get baptized in their way. Accept their book and then you will be accepted by them. Uh, even in the official teaching of Roman Catholicism, uh, it is like this. Trust in Jesus, yes, but you also need to contribute your works as well. Get baptized, go to mass, do your penance, and so on. And, and so we're taught, and, and we think almost by instinct, that our acceptance uh, with God is related to our performance. Uh, I remember when I was uh, growing up, I was... I was very unsure of my salvation. I, I knew that Jesus loved me. I knew that Jesus died for me. 
Uh, and if I trusted in Jesus, then I could have uh, eternal life. Uh, and yet, uh, I went through one of those, uh, those cycles that I'm sure many of us are familiar with. I, on top of that, that gospel, I'd laid on my performance. And so when I was going to church and I was reading my Bible, then I was confident that I would be saved. But then when I committed some sin or, or I hadn't read my Bible for, uh, for a while, then I would start to doubt. Does God really accept me? Does God really love me? And I'm sure we'll be, uh, many of us will be familiar with that cycle uh, of confidence and joy and then anxiety and guilt depending on my moral and religious performance. Uh, well, I had not grasped, and uh, perhaps some of us here today had not, have not grasped the truth of justification by faith alone. Uh, sola fide, faith alone. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that this is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. Now, to be justified means to be declared right uh, with someone. If you end up in a, in, a, in a court, there's one of two verdicts that the judge will give. The judge could, uh, could declare you uh, guilty, in which case you would be said to be condemned, or the judge can declare you to be, to be innocent, to be in the right, and you would, say, you would be said to be justified. The main point of, our, of, of the talk this morning is, is summarized for us in chapter 3 and verse 28, Romans 3 verse 28. How are we justified? We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Faith alone declares to us. We cannot get to heaven by our own merits, only by faith in Jesus. Now, faith, again, is one of those words that we, we, we uh, have uh, struggle understanding sometimes. Faith simply just means uh, trust or reliance or dependence. It's actually not a particularly religious word. All of us have, have faith. If uh, anyone took a grab, a grab car or Uber here this morning, then you exercised a fair bit of faith that uh, the driver would uh, follow the speed limit and would uh, take you here. If you've been on a holiday recently, you took the plane, uh, then you had a fair bit of faith uh, in, in the airline pilot, especially if it was MAB. The important thing about uh, faith, we all have faith. The important thing about faith is what is our faith in? Are we trusting in ourselves, in our own works, our own religious performance? Or is our faith in Jesus and his death for us? Well, if we are to grasp the importance of this marvellous doctrine, then we, the first thing we must understand is that none of us, by our own works, can merit our way to heaven. Where at point one, we are saved by faith. We are justified by faith and not by works. Now, the great reformer Martin Luther knew this uh, very well. Luther trained as a, as a lawyer. We won't hold that against him. Uh, but after a frightening experience in a, in a thunderstorm on the 2nd of July, 1505, he vowed, saying, Help me, Saint Anna. He didn't pray to Jesus. Help me, Saint Anna, and I will become a monk. God saved him. He kept his vow. He became a monk. And there began uh, an intense scheme of, of Bible study and confession day after day. Uh, Luther would confess his sins. Uh, over and over again. He would punish himself for his failures over and over again. And yet, as hard as he tried to be good, to be religious, 
all Luther felt was the heavy burden of guilt upon him and the heavy hand of God's judgment. And so for all his Bible reading, so for all his service, Luther did not love God. Luther was angry with God because living in that medieval church, all he was reminded of day after day was of the persistent threat of the anger of a God that he could never please. Now, in one sense, Luther at this stage had things right based on our own religious performance. We are guilty. Uh, we, we do fall short of God's righteous standards. Left to our, to our own religious efforts and morality, we most certainly will fail and we will receive the righteous anger uh, of God. And, and Paul's goal in uh, Romans chapters 1 to 3 is to, is to convince us of this truth, that, that everyone, with no exception, uh, falls into the category of evil and therefore deserves God's judgment. Uh, the ar argument comes to a climax in chapter 3 and verse 9 in our Bible reading. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Uh, here is a truth that we all must grasp. We have all failed to live to God's righteous standards. Uh, I think we're perhaps uh, used to, to taking on a rather uh, Muslim way of thinking, actually, uh, that 50% uh, will probably be okay. Muslims believe that there are two angels, one on each uh, of our shoulders. One's recording all the good deeds uh, that we do. The other's recording all the bad deeds. Uh, and on the judgment day, God's going to, to, to weigh the scales, if you like. And if the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, then, we'll be, then they will be okay. God will let them into paradise. Now, of course, we can uh, deceive ourselves in that kind of way. I think 50% is okay, especially when we are comparing ourselves with other people. Uh, but here is the thing that we must grasp. God does not compare to our measly standards. Uh, God does not desire 50%. God compares us to himself, to perfection. He is the God who is always pure, always righteous, always loving, never selfish, never proud. And his standard for us is that we love him with all of our heart, all of our soul and mind and strength and love our neighbour as ourselves. Uh, deep down, we know none of us has met that standard. None of us could. Uh, and scripture confirms what we feel deep down. If salvation is dependent on me, there is no hope. There is no acceptance. Like Luther, all we should expect to feel is the judgment of God. Uh, Paul summarizes this point in chapter 3, verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge uh, of sin. Paul's point here is that no amount of human effort is going to cut it in the end. 
it doesn't matter how many religious rituals or, or rules we try to follow, how many times we've been baptized or, or taken the Lord's Supper. It doesn't matter how many uh, acts of random kindness we have engaged in, or doesn't even matter our attempts uh, to keep God's holy and righteous Old Testament law. None of those things will justify us. None of those things will be enough. Verse 20 says that through the law, all that happens is we come knowledge, become knowledge, uh, comes knowledge of our sin. We, we strive to, to follow all of these rules. And yet all that happens is we become more aware of just how short we fall. And so on the judgment day, as God holds up his perfect, righteous standard, there will be, uh, every mouth will be silenced. There will be no excuses. There will be no defense that we can plead. Every mouth will be quiet. The whole world accountable to God. If we are to grasp the majesty of justification by faith alone, we must first recognize we can and we never will have a righteousness of our own. But of course, the gospel rings with good news, doesn't it? Uh, verse 21 begins with those marvelous words, but now we were sinners headed for eternal judgment at God's hand, but now... God has done something about it. Martin Luther spoke of this passage as the single most important paragraph that has ever been written in the entire entirety of human history. And I think he's right. Because here we see the glorious good news of the gospel, that God has made a way for us to be justified by faith. Have a look at verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The Bible declares that we can be righteous before God. But this is not a righteousness that comes from within. This is a righteousness that comes from without. It's an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness given to those who have faith, to all who believe. Now, how can this be? How could, how could the, the holy and righteous God declare guilty sinners like us to be right with him? Surely that is unjust. Surely that is wrong. For Paul explains in verse 23, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Uh, we began to see this last week. Uh, justification rests on God's grace alone, uh, rather than being merited or earned. It is given by God freely, without charge, without merit. Uh, to redeem means to, to buy someone back out of slavery by the payment uh, of a price. Now, we've all, we've all heard, uh, no doubt, over the last two weeks of the, the very sad case of the uh, abduction of... Uh, past, uh, Pastor Reverend uh, Raymond Cole. Uh, of course, we've heard nothing about him, isn't it? Uh, we do not know if he is alive or he is dead. It's a very worrying thing for the country in which we live. But let us imagine that the kidnappers did come up with a note. They, they asked for a ransom, one million ringgit. We will set him free. 
If we paid that price, he would be redeemed. He would be saved from slavery. Let us pray that happens. Well, in the Old Testament, the great act of, of redemption was the Exodus. God redeemed his people there out of slavery from Egypt. He brought them out. Uh, the final plague was the death of the firstborn son. And to redeem his people, God provided a sacrifice uh, to save them from his judgment. They were to kill a lamb, paint its blood on the doorpost. And as they did so, as they trusted in the lamb, they would be rescued uh, later on, God would institute the sacrificial system. And, and there again, uh, as they sinned, each time they sinned, they would offer, they would kill a goat. They would kill a bull. On the Day of Atonement, uh, they would take this blood and sprinkle it in, into the most holy place. And through these sacrifices God provided, they, they, could be, they could be made right with him again. Spared from his judgment. And... We're told here in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, that God has provided this glorious sacrifice we need. Uh, Jesus is the one God, uh, God put forward as a, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Uh, uh, propitiation, another long word in this passage today. Uh, it's a, a, a propitiation is a sacrifice that takes away wrath. The, the picture I like is, uh, imagine I'm giving flowers. Uh, to my wife. Uh, maybe I forgot to wash the dishes again or something like that. And so I get flowers, hoping that her wrath will be turned aside. That's something like what is happening here. Paul is saying Christ has offered the perfect sacrifice. The sacrifice that can turn away God's anger from us, just as the Passover lamb died in the place of the people. So Jesus went to the cross he took on himself God's anger on our sin. He, he took on upon himself uh, sin and death and so on, that we would be justified, that we would be declared right with him. Uh, and this means that, that when God set, declares guilty sinners like us to be right with him, he, it's entirely just. It's entirely righteous for him to do so. Verse uh, 25, uh, he goes on and says, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. At the cross, God doesn't uh, simply overlook our sins. They are paid for in full as Jesus dies in our place. At the cross, God's justice is satisfied and his mercy and his grace is perfectly displayed as he judges sin and justifies sinners. Now, the big point that we see all the way through this passage, through verses 21 to 26, is the way that we receive this righteousness is by faith in him alone. Now, verse 22 now on the screen, uh, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Verse 25, we're redeemed through faith in his blood. Verse 26, uh, God is the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And this was the great uh, discovery or, or rediscovery that Martin Luther made 500 years ago. Uh, Luther, as he was reading through this very book, the book of Romans, he came to Romans chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17. Uh, he read these words. 
I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For many years he grappled with these words. What did they mean? And suddenly their meaning was was revealed to him. Salvation comes to those who believe. The righteous are those who live by faith. Rather than having to earn our righteousness, God gives his righteousness to those who will trust him. And as Luther realized this, suddenly all the the anger and the guilt and the burden dropped away, replaced with sheer joy. Uh, Look at this uh, quote, if we can find. Uh, He writes in his autobiography, I began to understand that the justice of God meant that justice by which the just man lives through God's gift, namely faith. This is what it means. The justice of God is revealed by the gospel, a passive justice with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it's written, he who through faith is just shall live. Here I felt as that I was altogether born again and entered, through, entered paradise itself through open gates. The joy. He didn't have to work anymore. God accepted him. He was liberated from the guilt. He was liberated uh, from the anger. And he knew he was loved by God, accepted by God. His future was secure with God. And he would therefore spend the rest of his life proclaiming this this grand doctrine uh, so that it might be preserved for us here uh, today. For for just as in Paul's day, And Luther's day, so in ours, there is a constant temptation for us to reject this truth, to tamper with this truth. Our our natural instinct is to replace it with works. We want to believe that we can win our own way to heaven. And so the temptation is always to, to add something on, to add something more, some way that I can contribute and not just faith alone, then I can be proud, then I can boast. And so in chapter 4, Paul takes us back to Abraham and David to underline this for us, that we're saved by faith alone, and not faith plus works. Uh, Have a look at chapter 4, verse 1, we're at point 2 on your outline. What then shall we say that was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him uh, as righteousness. Uh, Abraham, of course, was the great, 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 great grandfather of the Jewish nation. We read about him uh, in the Bible reading from Genesis Chapter 15, Uh, all the Jews were proud that they descended from Abraham. Chapter 2, we we see they thought that they would get to heaven because they were Jews, descended from him. And yet Paul shows us here that even Abraham could not boast in his works. 
If we read through Genesis, we will find he was not perfect in every way. Even if he was, he couldn't boast before God. He'd only be doing his duty. But Abraham was not justified by works. Now Paul quotes uh, from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, in verse 3. How was he justified? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as, as righteousness. All he did was believe God's promise. Trust God, and he was accepted by him. Now, sometimes I think where we make the mistake of uh, thinking that faith itself is a work, as if on the judgment day I could, uh, I could proudly boast, but I'm here in heaven because I put my faith in Jesus. There's other people out there, they didn't put their faith in Jesus, but I did. I made the right decision, and that's why God has accepted me. Now, maybe we wouldn't put it in those words. Uh, but... Here is the point. Paul's point is the exact opposite of that. Faith is not a work. It's certainly not something that we can boast about. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Have a look at verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, if you read that carefully, you will see that faith and works are mutually exclusive. Uh, faith is directly opposed to the principle of works. Now, we, I think we get that when you go to work uh, and you, on Monday morning, uh, what drives you is you know, if I'm going to work, 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 I'm going to earn my salary at the end of the week. Your boss is not going to say to you at the end of the month, uh, you know, thanks for working. I've decided to give you a gift this month. I'm going to put some money in your bank account. Uh, you don't think like that. You think, I earned the money. I deserve the money. But faith is not like that, is it? Faith is the, is the open hands that, that receive a gift. Uh, if I hold out my hands like this, it's, it's not going to make the gift appear, is it? The important thing is, is not the hands. The open hands are just the, the mechanism that receive the gift. Or to use a, another uh, illustration, imagine if uh, Jim told me this morning that he had deposited one million ringgit into my bank account. Here's my ATM card. Here's my PIN. All you have to do is trust me, use the card, and the money is yours. Now, if he did that, I couldn't say, I earned the money, could I? <laughs> Uh, I couldn't congratulate myself. I've been so good that I got a one million ringgit bonus this, this year. Uh, it's not how it works. Uh, it's, it's his money. I've just been given the card uh, to withdraw it. That, that's what faith is. It's the instrument that receives. It's not a, not a work in and of itself. And that's like that with faith. As I, as I trust in Jesus, his righteousness is, is credited into my bank account. And so all the credit goes to, to him, not to me. I'm only ever a sinner. But in Christ, I am made righteous a saint. Now if we go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we will see that even, uh, even this faith itself is a gift from God. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, the, the whole process of salvation, including faith itself, is a gift that is graciously given us by God. And so the point here is that salvation is by faith alone. It's not faith plus works. Uh, that was the, the false teaching in the, in the Catholic Church that Luther fought so vehemently against. Because Catholicism says, yes, you must trust in Jesus, but you must do works as well. Faith is not enough. Faith plus works is what you need. Go to the Mass, practice confession, take the last rites. You might escape purgatory. Uh, here is the official teaching of the Catholic Church uh, from the Council of Trent. It hasn't, it's still uh, active today. It says this, uh, next slide please. If anyone shall say that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in the divine mercy pardoning sins for Christ's sake, or that it is that confidence alone by which we are justified, let him be accursed. Starts off so well, isn't it? And ends so badly. It's very strong language, isn't it? And it's the exact opposite of what we read in Romans 4 verse 5. Uh, to the one who does not work, but believes him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's not faith and works. It's, it's faith alone. The moment that you add anything to faith, you destroy faith. You destroy the gospel. It's, it's, it's as if you, you get a, a Vincent van Gogh uh, painting and uh, we hang it up here and then I decide to make a few improvements on it. And so I get out my paintbrush and I, and I draw all over it. Well, the moment I add anything onto that canvas, its value uh, decreases uh, to almost zero. You add anything to faith, you destroy it. Because at that point, you're, you're no longer trusting in, in Jesus to save you. You're no longer assured in him. You're trusting in yourself, isn't it? And you're never sure if you've done enough for God to accept you. Verse 5 says, the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now that is a very striking phrase, isn't it? Let's think about it again. The holy and righteous God, who always does what is right, declares unrighteous, ungodly sinners like us to be righteous before him. It's scandalous, isn't it? How could this be right? It seems unjust. It seems untrue, and yet it's not, is it? Because the Bible teaches that at the cross, there's a, a, transact, a transfer that takes place. There at the cross, my sin is, is counted to Jesus. His righteousness, his perfect righteousness, is, is, is counted to me. And so the penalty is paid, but it is paid by him. And the righteous standard has been achieved, but it has been given to me as a gift. And so at the same time, if I am a Christian, then I am both a sinner and a saint. In and of myself, I'm an ungodly sinner. But as I put my faith in Christ, I'm justified and I'm utterly righteous before him. 
Not only am I credited his righteousness, but we read on in verse 6 that God doesn't, does not count my sin against me. Uh, verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Uh, here again, another glorious truth. As I put my faith in Jesus, my sin is taken away, paid for at the cross, counted against me no more. Now, David had a few skeletons in the closet, didn't he? If you know anything about him, uh, he'd committed adultery and then killed uh, the, girl, the lady's wife in order to cover, to cover it up. Uh, he couldn't get much worse than that, could you? And yet David came to this glorious truth. What a blessing indeed to have our sins covered, forgiven, to have them not stand against me anymore. Uh, I'm almost certain in the crowd this, this size that there are things in our life that we are utterly ashamed of. Uh, there is guilt that, that hangs with us and has hung with us for a long time. And we think to ourselves, with those skeletons in the closet, how could God possibly love me? How could God possibly accept a sinner, an ungodly sinner like me? Here is the glorious truth of justification by faith. God declares, because of Jesus, he will not count our sins against us. In his sight, we are pure, righteous, perfect, accepted. Now, if we've understood this correctly, there is no doubt an objection that you have in your mind, and, and it is this. If, if I'm justified, justified by faith and not by works, then surely it doesn't matter how I live. I can live however I like. I can do whatever I want because anyway, I'm not saved by my works. And so long as I'm trusting in Jesus and it's fine, I can, I can speed and I can kill people and I can steal things and I'll still go to heaven. Now that's a, that's a grave misunderstanding of justification by faith. Uh, and so we need to read Romans 4 alongside with other passages like James chapter 2. I wonder if you'd turn there with me. James chapter 2, it's just after Hebrews. If you get to Revelation and 1 Peter, you've gone too far. James chapter 2. I've also got it up on the screen as well. James writes this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Sounds like faith plus works, doesn't it? Well, it gets more complicated because he, as he goes on, he appeals to the very same passage that Paul just appeared to uh, from Genesis 15. I'll have a look at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God 
and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. <laughs> now, I wonder what you make of verse 24. Uh, does that contradict everything that I've just said, everything Paul has just said to us in Romans? Was the, were the reformers wrong? Is faith alone wrong? Well, the answer, of course, is, is no, it's not wrong. Uh, James's point is this. It's not that our works save us, but his point is that real faith will always express itself in works. See, trusting in Jesus, putting our faith in Jesus, is not just some intellectual uh, assent to some uh, some truths. If you look to verse 18 on the next slide, uh, he says this, uh, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe. And shudder. I mean, according to this definition of faith, even demons have faith. They believe, isn't it? They believe Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, but they don't submit to him. They hate him, and they hate his lordship. Uh, real faith is not just a belief that Jesus is Lord, is it? True faith must express itself actively in works. And, and those, those works will show that the faith is, is genuine. Here's, uh, here's how Calvin puts it very helpfully. We are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. True saving faith will always express itself in works. And that agrees entirely with what Paul teaches as well. Have a look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's the first part, isn't it? We are saved by grace through faith, not works. But then he has verse 10 there as well. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. And see what he's saying here. You're not saved by your works. The way that you are justified before God is by faith alone. But when we are saved by faith, there's always a goal to it. There's always a purpose to it. We are saved from sin to serve him. And so real faith will turn from sin and express itself in good works. Always. It's not that good works give us salvation. But saving faith will always produce these good works. And so it makes us ask the question, doesn't it? Does my life show that my faith is real? Am I living what I believe? Is my Christian faith simply some intellectual assent that Jesus is Lord? But there's no life, life transformation that has occurred. True faith, biblical faith, always leads to good works. Well, as we finish, just a couple of uh, implications to wrap us up. Justification by faith 
firstly means we cannot boast. We cannot boast. Uh, on the screen, next slide. Uh, chapter 3, verse 27. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Or chapter 4, verse 2. If Abraham was justified by faith, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. You see that the implication here, if I'm saved by faith and not by my works, then I cannot boast before God. Uh, justification by faith is a humbling uh, concept. It teaches me that there's absolutely nothing about me that makes me worthy before him. And that should also transform the way I think about other people as well. I can't boast about any, anyone else. I cannot proclaim that I am better than you because I am more godly in the Christian life or I have, I, I have done less bad things than you or I've served in these ways that you haven't served. Like it's easy to boast, isn't it? Justification by faith levels the playing field. We're all evil. None of us deserve God's, God's, uh, God's acceptance. We're all sinners, saved by grace. And so we treat one another with grace. And we act in humility. Secondly, great assurance. Uh, at the start, I mentioned that of my, my own lack of assurance, uh, uh, whether I would go to heaven, because... I was trusting in Jesus, yes, but subconsciously I was thinking that my performance was, was what was going to get me there. Uh, now, of course, there's going to be some days when we go well in the Christian life, and there's going to be, but there's going to be other days when we're going to mess up uh, very badly, and, and, and it's very problematic if we start to think that the reason why God accepted me on Monday is any different to the way he accepted when I was doing good, it was any different to the way he, he accepted me on Tuesday when I did, when I did evil. If I'm trusting in Christ, it's irrelevant whether I did good on Monday or bad on Tuesday. Because the grounds of my confidence before God has nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with my performance. He's paid for my sins, all of them. Past, present, and future as well. He's given me his perfect righteousness. I'm completely forgiven. All of my sins have been set aside, never to be uncovered again. I can be absolutely confident that I'll be accepted by God. Christianity is very different to every other religion, isn't it? Every other religion says, you must do. And Christianity says, Jesus has done it all. I can remember when I was about 17 years old, uh, the youth pastor in my church explaining in his sermon that he was 100% sure that he was going to heaven. That sounds like boasting, doesn't it? <laughs> but it wasn't. Because he wasn't pretending that his good works was getting him there. He knew that it entirely depended on Jesus. And if Jesus had done it all, then he could be assured that Jesus would get him there. Here is a wonderful truth. If you have truly put your faith in Jesus, then you can be absolutely certain you will be there in heaven with him because he's loved you and he's accepted you right now and nothing you do will change that. 
Now, it may well be that this morning that there are some of us here who have not yet trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. Perhaps we're still trusting in our works. Maybe we're following some other religion. Maybe we've been coming to church for quite some time. But it's been about what I do. The things that I, the rituals I've followed, the church attendance, the Bible studies that I've been to, and so on. We've been trusting in our works. If that is you this morning, hear the glorious truth of the gospel. If you turn to Jesus, put your faith in him, you will be completely accepted, righteous before him, loved and accepted by God. And if we are those who have experienced this amazing justification by faith alone, then may our life indeed Bring forth the fruit of faith as we live in humility and thankfulness and love and serve one another for what he has done for us. Now let's, let's turn to him in prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank you that we do not have to earn our way up to heaven, piling up our good deeds one by one, hoping that you will accept them. Lord, we know that we have all fallen far short of your standards. And yet we thank you for this glorious truth that Jesus died in our place that he took our judgment upon himself and that his perfect righteousness has been credited to us when we trust in him. We thank you indeed that you take us to the very gates of paradise itself, that heaven's doors are open to those who trust in Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that you would help each one of us never to... Uh, to be tempted to trust in ourselves, in anything that we do, but to once again uh, throw ourselves entirely at the feet of the cross and trust in Jesus to save us. Father, would you humble our pride, take away our boasting, and may you fill us with the assurance of your love and a, and a longing to serve you to turn away from our sins and produce the good works that so please you. Father, we thank you for this glorious truth and we pray that we may indeed be those who defend it afresh to a new generation uh, that many more would come to trust in Jesus and trust in him alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.